John chapter 17. This is hopefully final, uh, at least in this small series, called Christ All-Powerful. Let's start reading in verse 1. I'm going to read three verses. John 17, 1 through 3. Uh, this is, I'm reading out of the modern King James Version. Jesus spoke these words and lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. Even as you have given him power over all flesh so that he should give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Last week we reviewed the first message, which included uh, the subject of the power and or authority of Christ in creating the world. We looked at a few different texts. We've, we've looked at that several times before. But we wanted to zero in on this thing of power. The attribute of the power of Christ. Who, Of course, we, we know that Christ has the same essence and attributes as the character of his father. It says that clearly in the scripture. Hebrews 1, for example. We secondly reviewed from the first message, the power and authority in providence and carrying those things out that were in creation. All things were created by him and for him and he runs the show. He makes things do what he wants them to do according to the purpose of God. So that is considered his providence. So he's in control there. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Another verse out of Hebrews chapter one, the first few verses. All things created by him and for him, by him all things consist. So he, he runs it. And then we started looking at the power or authority of Christ in salvation, which we look at every week. We look at every week. So when we look at this, we're going to like, we're hitting it from a different angle. We could like run through the attributes of God and we have done that. There's a series on sermon audio, but uh, about the power of, of God as well as his other attributes. But we're doing it today in connection of the power of Christ specifically in salvation specifically. So let me read that middle verse of the three verses we read again. Even as you, speaking, this is Christ praying to his father. Even as you, father, have given him, or in other words, me, Christ, power over all flesh, both elect and non-elect, that he or, or I, Christ, should give eternal life to all that you, Father, have given him or me. So this is talking about Christ talked to his Father. He said, you've, you, you've given me all authority and power to do this. We read in uh, the book of Hebrews, for example, when it talks about the priesthood of the old covenant, it says that priests are not self-appointed, that they're appointed by someone else to do their job. Well, Christ was not self-appointed. He was chosen by the Father, the only qualified one. He was elect and precious to the Father. The Father in his wisdom knew that this was the only one that could do this. 
in his eternal wise purpose to glorify himself in the salvation of sinners. So he had Christ to do this. And of course, Christ has all preeminence in, in everything he does, but especially right here. So Christ comes down and he, he says, you know, I, I come to do the will of my father. And he's, in other words, he's acting out this decree that the father said, this is what's got to happen. This is what they uh, covenanted together, agreed, uh, which contained conditions and promises and things like that. So Christ was the surety of his people, and he fulfilled in time the things that were contained in the covenant uh, before time. So he chose a people, the Father chose a people in his sovereign grace, and he gave them over to Christ. Christ took on responsibility to represent them, to be their surety, their substitute, their representative, their everything. And he took on all the responsibilities that God required of them, fulfilled all the conditions that God required that they fulfill to make it, and Christ fulfilled all those. And on the cross, when he was done with that, he said, it's finished. So I'm going to repeat the question that I asked last week. I added a little bit more information this week, but I'm going to repeat the question. Do you think there is anything that will stand in the way of accomplishing the purpose of God in salvation with Christ running the show? Now, we're pulled by the world in many different directions. I'm always hearing about people who claim to believe the gospel all of a sudden start doubting the uh, maybe the inerrancy or the authenticity of the truth of the Bible, for example. And it's they start chipping away at that. They start hearing things and um, then they go off on these wild tangents and start tweaking uh, either the person or work of Christ or both. I've seen that. Uh, I've been involved in the gospel for 30 years now. And um, in, I'm seeing person after person after person drop off and apostatize, either because they don't care or they've believed some lie about the person and work of Christ. Now, the serpent, we know the serpent in the garden. Remember, uh, who is the father of lies, whether you want to call him Satan, the devil, or whatever, that he's the father of lies, he always delights in casting doubt on God's word, right? Now, if we know uh, this is his goal, I mean, that's part of, that's almost half the battle. Uh, the other half is, you know, rejecting it. So we know ahead of time, this is Satan's goal to cause us to doubt God's word. And Satan just doesn't come out and um, through means and, and just announces, hey, I'm getting ready to fake you out. I'm getting ready to lie to you. You know, neither does a false prophet as he, the churches of Galatia, those false brethren, when they slipped in, they didn't announce. We've, we've mentioned this before. They didn't say, hey, I'm going to bring in the law and add it to Christ and we're going to Judaize your gospel and turn it into a false gospel. Heads up, they didn't do that. Uh, Satan and his people and his ministers transformed themselves into angels of light or truth. They tried to mask their lie with truth. Uh, 
And um, the key is subtlety. So since his first lie with Eve, uh, the devil has not stopped to conspire and to try to sway people to doubt the truth of God. Doubt his decree, doubt his promises, doubt if he, if he even exists. But if people say, yeah, he, and there, here's the easy part for him. People, he just makes people religious. Yeah, God exists. I believe in God. But then the things about that God are the idolatrous ideas of people's minds where they form a God of their own imagination and they're puffed up with their own pride and self-righteousness. It's a, it's a religion where they can take some part of the glory in. So this is why we're kind of jumping around and dealing with at times different attributes and hitting this thing from different angles. And we're talking about the power and authority of Christ today. And so there is just a snapshot of one aspect where uh, the devil can blur this area of power in many different ways. And we've already looked at some. Now, if you think about it, Satan's task in fooling the unregenerate is pretty easy because the unregenerate is dead in their trespasses and sins. They are totally depraved. We know, we've been there. We see the testimony of Scripture about total depravity, all the different variety of aspects considered in that doctrine. There's a natural ignorance of man in a totally depraved state. He doesn't know God. He can't understand God. He doesn't seek after God. He is naturally self-righteous. That is the thing that blinds him from the righteousness of Christ and the glory of God. And his will is in bondage. In I believe it's 2 Timothy. It talks about how that Satan has taken captive people at his own will. So, so much for free willers, especially those that claim to be, un, that are unregenerate and claim to have free will. And those that are Converted and claims to be uh, believe in free will. I don't even get that. So that's another message. So the spirit of Antichrist. Uh, John mentioned that in First uh, John. The spirit of Antichrist back then, 2,000 years ago, when John wrote, close to 2,000 years ago, was alive and well then. Well, what do you think it is now? If evil men shall wax worse and worse, being deceived and deceiving people, the spirit of Antichrist is thick right now. So it's alive and well now. Got the same problems and even worse now than it was when John had mentioned that. So with all this in play and the vast majority of the world is against Christ, is against his gospel, and is against us as we stand for the gospel. We ask that question, do we believe that Christ, the eternal son of God, has the power to follow through with accomplishing redemption. And not only that, but get that information, that record concerning accomplished redemption to all of his elect sheep in every generation. I hear it all the time. People question that. People that claim to believe what we believe. So they'll, they'll trim down the gospel. They'll take off the rough edges of the offense of the gospel. They'll take out the distinctions. They'll make it more generic. They'll open the door wider than God has opened the door. 
they will add things to grace to make void the gospel. They'll add philosophy to make void the word of God, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1. All that stuff's going on. And, and these things are to remind us, watch out for all these things. So as, as, as everything we're talking about, all these things that God has done to save us in Christ, they're backed with power and all those other attributes. So to save his elect sheep, it's going to take one who has all power, not just one who's powerful, one who is all powerful. So I want us to see him that way. Turn to John chapter uh, 19. There's two verses here. It's uh, talking about Pilate. Pilate thought he had power. Some of you, I think, are familiar with this text. And he brought Christ's power into question when he was like saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a government dude. I'm above you, you know. Uh, John 19 And verse 10, we don't have time to read the context before, but uh, it, it talks about, it's talking about the kingship of Christ early on up there. And they're mocking him, saying he's the king of the Jews and all that. And I think pretty much Pilate's thinking, this, this guy, uh, look at his circumstances. How can he be king? And we know that Christ's kingship is connected to the crucifixion. <clears throat> It didn't have anything to do with the splendor of national Israel or anything like that. He came to die. And this was, he was acting out his kingship there and doing that, his mediatorial kingship. Pilate was, of course, clueless. He, he said, then, then Pilate said to him, verse 10, uh, do you not speak to me? Do you know that I have authority or power to crucify you? And I have authority to release you? Like, I'm the man. Christ, who do you think you're dealing with? I'm the one with authority here. Jesus answered, You could, know, you could have no, no authority against me unless it were given to you from above. Right? Referring to his father. Now, go to Acts 4. We're going to see specifically how that was stated. That very same thing was stated uh, in a positive in reference to providence, how that providence is con controlled by God and not man. Acts 4, 26. And this here kind of weeds out, rules out free will of man. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, your holy child Jesus, whom you have anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, that's the dude we just talked about, Pontius Pilate, who thought he had the authority, with the nations and the people of Israel, so he included Jews and Gentiles, that's everybody in the world, were gathered together, all of them together, you can use the word conspiracy. They conspired to try to uh, to do this. And in, in order, verse 28, in order to do whatsoever your hand, your hand, capital in my verse, it's capital R, 
your is capitalized, referring to God, in order to do whatsoever God's hand and God's counsel determined before to be done. This is harmonious with, of course, like Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. I think it's 9 through 11. Talking about God declaring the end from the beginning, his counsel, it will stand. He'll do all his pleasure. Nobody can stop him. It's saying the same thing. So Satan, he, he still works and his ministers, his false ministers, work on the minds of people. But God's sheep, it's a promise. God's sheep will hear his voice. Hear the voice of their shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, and shall follow him and not hear the voice of a stranger. They might be derailed here and there, just confused a few times. We, we see it in the, the uh, letters to the churches that, you know, and then the apostles correct whatever problems and they get back on track because of the word of God. But in finality, in the end, none of them will finally apostatize. What happens to those that we see who claim to believe the same gospel that we believe, and then they fall away? There's been all kind of them come through here. There might be some right now in the process who've been here in the last couple years who may not ever come back and may not ever engage in some defense or express a love or a profession of the gospel. It's called apostasy. It means they never were regenerated. They never were real believers. They weren't true disciples. They did, in other words, they don't persevere in the gospel. Believe the gospel into the end. The writer of Hebrews said, we are not those that fall away, but we believe into the salvation of our souls. So it's uh, both God, God that works both in us to uh, do and will of his good pleasure. He's the one that causes us to live by faith and we are held in his hand by his what? Power. So those that apostatize, really, it comes down to they're ashamed of the gospel, which we can go further and say they hate the gospel. They, they don't, I mean, they're not a believer in it. They don't embrace it and persevere in it. They must have some other hope. God's people will not fall away. They're saved by the power of God and kept through faith, the scripture says. All right, so last week we ended up uh, dealing with this area of salvation. We looked at the person of Christ, how that he took on flesh. We talked about he had to have a body to be a sacrifice to God for sin, to put sin away, to redeem his people. We spoke of the sinless body of Christ, how that his person and his humanity is not like ours. He bypassed sin through the virgin birth. He didn't inherit sin. He didn't inherit a sin nature. He had a human nature, but it was not a sinful nature. So he was sinless humanity. And this is in connection with the power of God. The wisdom of God, first of all, to bypass a sin nature, 
But the power of God to create this one, this this uh, God in human flesh in the body, the womb of a virgin Mary. The eternal son of God was always the son of God in spirit and he took on flesh. So that took on that took power to get that done. He placed the seed into Mary. God has the power to do that. He was born under the law to honor the law, to keep it, to magnify it, to fulfill it, to satisfy it. He had the power to do that. He was perfect God and perfect man, two natures and in one person. Can he do it? You know, there's all kind of different ways people can chip away and doubt that. They can say, you know, Christ was tempted. He could have sinned, they say. That's ridiculous. Because of who he was, he could not. That's not a detriment. That's attributed to the power of who he is. He will not fail. You know why? Because he cannot fail. He would be denying himself. So we're going to move to the second section here. And this section is what we talk about really all the time. And we're going to talk about some specifics. And, you know, I'm not going to exhaust this. We had talked before about, you know, this is holy ground here. When we deal with the death of Christ and what it accomplished, we're not just going to microwave the thing and throw it out there and be vague and roll on. This is we're going to be hitting on this Christ and him crucified every week until we're dead. We have to. We want to. And we we can never hit the mark like we want to. You know, we always want to speak more gloriously about him. We want to magnify him more. And I think this is part of what Paul's talking about. It says we see through a glass darkly. Not because Paul wanted to stack up a bunch of intellectual ideas and say, man, I'm a theologian. No, he's he's wanting to, to feed off of Christ and who he is. He wants to see him more clearly so that he can boast in him more. This is the second part. First, he had to have a body. And then secondly, he had to die. Right? That was part of him being a sacrifice or an offering, as uh, Eric read in Isaiah 53 for our scripture reading. We're going to be going back to Isaiah 53, looking at a few verses there and looking at a few things. So, first of all, his purpose in coming down, condescending down from his throne, was to die in order to glor- primarily to glorify his Father. Now, people that don't know about an effectual sufficient, accomplished, finished atonement. They have no idea what that even means. That he came down to glorify his father in his death. Because most most people that believe that Christ died for everybody, they see Christ dying and suffering and they just, it's like almost like, oh, poor God, poor, poor Jesus. You know, they don't understand what he accomplished. Some say, I remember Pat Robinson, the false prophet that runs Christian Broadcasting Network. He ran for president back in the 80s. And he said it was God's will for him to be the president. Spoke pretty authoritatively. Well, he didn't become president. And I don't think he's going to run again. So I don't think he's going to be president. But 
they asked him after he lost, I thought you said it was God's will that you were to become the president. And I'm paraphrasing. He said, well, you know, take Christ, for example. He came to be king, and it didn't work out the first time. He got killed. So he's coming back later to establish that. Do with, with that what you want. Use that for whatever comedy this week you want to supplement in your jokes. Because that's massive. That's ridiculous. So his purpose, Christ's purpose is Godward first. It's to glorify his Father. It's to do his Father's will. And then it's, we benefit from the fruits of that. It's our salvation. Now, back in the text that I started out with in John 17, it says, Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, and here's the phrase I want to see, the hour is come. He used that phrase throughout the Gospels and some, some shortening of that, the hour and some talking about him. <clears throat> Maybe when they're getting ready to stone him or something, he said he slipped through the crowd. They tried to stone him or they tried to get a hold of him, but his hour was not yet or his hour had not come, or it was not the hour yet. The hour referring to, here it is, what the world was created for, the space of time when Christ came to glorify his Father. It's a short work. What's it say in Romans 9, toward the end? It says something about this righteousness, and he said a short work will the Lord do, even if it's 33 years of his whole work, it's short compared to all the generations and eternity. But even this, this death, this what it took to put away sin, is even a more magnification in a shorter space of time. And he says, glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. It's a dual thing. It's both going to happen. Now, I want to just briefly, and I do stress briefly, talk about the imputation or the, the charging or the reckoning or accounting or the transfer. There's a few words there that go into defining imputation. The imputation of the sin of the elect to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have plans to do a series on um, justification, which is the other end of the exchange where we get his righteousness because he took care of sin. And when we look there, we're going to look closely at how the sinner was made righteous. We're going to talk a lot about imputation and some false theories that, that may uh, try to compete against that. But I want us to turn to... Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to look at some other ones after that, verse 21. And again, we're just going to just scratch the surface here, and we'll, we have plans to look at this more deeply and, and further. And we, we've looked at this several times, connected it up to some other contexts. We recently, seems like we connected this up with Romans 5. We read Romans 5 in this series already. But let's see what we can see here. 
and I want to name the characters as I go through here, just like in John 17 too, who's the he, who's the him, and, and all that. It's not that difficult. For he, the Father, made him Christ, and then it describes Christ in a positive way. It's just what we talked about here a second ago. The Christ who knew no sin. We see in several different ways how that he was sinless, flawless, undefiled. How that he was, he had to be that way to be a perfect sacrifice. He remained perfect throughout the sacrifice in his person, in his nature, right? He was the lamb without spot or blemish in himself. This is part of the qualification of being an acceptable sacrifice. So the father made this one Christ, this one who knew no sin, never knew it. He made him to be sin. Some translations, if I remember right, take out to be, and it just says sin, made him sin. I got no problem with that. You can say it either way. It means the same thing. Made him sin for us. It's for his people. It's not talking about anybody else. I mean, this is not a message uh, countering universal atonement. We, we reject universal atonement outright. We don't believe that Christ died for all without exception. This is talking about the elect, the sheep, the remnant, his people. The Father made Christ to be sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, I just look at a few things here. And again, we're, we're not claiming, <coughs> claiming to exhaust this at all. In the context of 2 Corinthians 5.21, uh, I knew a guy years ago, and I haven't talked to him in a while. I uh, heard him in a message recently talking about how that he got some new light. I, I think I'd mentioned this in the message not too long ago or in personal conversations with some of you. He got some new light on this idea of imputation or the word imputed when it comes to sin and or righteousness. And he got it from listening to another preacher. And um, so I listened to that message where he said that. And then I listened to the message of the preacher who he got new light from. And I'm not in agreement of the vast majority of the things that either one of them said in the context of that topic. But the new light or the new definition is imputation is imputing something that is already there. Now, I want to go through and show the positive first of all that we don't agree with that the scripture doesn't agree with that and show the positive aspect of of what uh, imputation is to just briefly to a certain extent here the question is in in any imputation and there are three imputations i'm going to add i'm going to say four three imputations that 
Um, <coughs> Adam's sin imputed to the whole human race is one. The imputation of the elect sin to Christ is another. And Christ's righteousness imputed to the elect is the third. There is a, there is a fourth, and it's different in the way the other three are used. And I'll explain that as we go along. So when we talk about the ground of something, we're talking about the first cause or the basis or the foundation of something. The ground of justification or condemnation, either one, is imputation. I am not, we can use ourselves personally from all the study we've done about conversion and regeneration. We can clearly, I hope by now, see that the ground of my justification is not the work of the Spirit in me. Romans 5 is clear on what the ground of justification is. It's the work of Christ for me. The righteousness of Christ imputed to my account results in God declaring me righteous based upon the righteousness of Christ established for me. The work of the Spirit is for me to be awakened to see that. Christ has all preeminence in salvation, and all spiritual blessings are opened up because Christ established righteousness, enabling the Spirit to do his work in us. We need the work of the Spirit in us, or we remain dead in trespasses and sins, and we can't see we have to live by faith, so therefore faith is a spiritual gift that is given to us that Christ had earned by what he accomplished on the cross. So the ground of the condemnation of the whole world is Adam's sin imputed to the whole world. The ground of condemnation to Christ is the sin of the elect imputed to Christ. The guilt, the curse and everything was imputed to him. Him who knew no sin became guilty after sin was imputed to him. And we'll, we'll uh, look at this a little bit more. Now, I first want to ask this question, because this is raised by people who question this idea. We know the Roman Catholic Church outright denies the idea of imputation. They call it legal fiction. They make fun of the idea that salvation has to do with law and justice being satisfied, that there's this forensic aspect of righteousness, that it has to be just, and it's imputed in a legal way. And they look at this idea of legal salvation as just being make-believe, legal fiction. So my question is, do we as God's people, and maybe have, I'll ask a further question, have you heard of any people claiming to believe like we believe, say that, that that's just not right? That's not fair for one who is innocent to be all of a sudden be made guilty in this way without being guilty in and of himself. And on the other hand, Rome, for example, says you can't 
be righteous by righteousness charged to your account. You have to be intrinsically righteous in and of yourself, which has to do with a, a personal righteousness or an imparted righteousness or Rome's infused righteousness. And I don't see any difference between infused and imparted, really. I don't see the difference. I shy away from that language altogether. But is it just? That's the question. We're concerned with God first. God's got to take care of himself before he can take care of us in this thing of salvation. Salvation is Godward. The sacrifice is Godward. We just get the benefits. So if we're wrong on the Godward part, second part doesn't matter. We're not going to get it. It's not done right. So is it just? Is it fair in God's eyes and God's faithful character, being faithful to himself and his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, to take the sin of God's people and to charge it to Christ and to make that the cause, the ground, and the basis and foundation of Christ being guilty? Is it just? Is it meet the test? And is it in line with the standard of God according to his justice? Does God have the right or authority to do that to his son? And does Christ have the right and authority to say, hey, do that to me? Wouldn't this worked out in the covenant? Christ volunteered. He signed up. And it wasn't a second thought. It was something eternally planned in God's wisdom. That this is the way it's to be done. And then we see it explained throughout in a progressive revelation. From Genesis to Revelation, we see it especially clearer in the New Testament. Spelled out for us. And we see exactly what happened. What God did to Christ. And that Christ willingly said, yeah, the hour's come. I'm going to glorify you, glorify me. And this is the way we're going to do it right here. So Christ agreed. He volunteered. He was driven by the motive of glorifying his father and love for his people, for his sheep, to have done it this way. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to come back and at least quote parts of uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Hopefully you guys have it memorized anyway. But here's some similar language used in Galatians 3 about Christ being made something. Galatians 3.10, for as many are under the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. I was talking to a, a new guy this week at work. He's supposed to, he said he would come sometime to church and he thought he was a law keeper. And I talked about the law, and um, you know, as I talked more about the law, he he started dropping the ones off that he thought he kept. He said, "Oh yeah, I'm guilty of that," you know. And he ended up with one, and he he thought he wasn't a murderer, even though I talked about hate and equated it to murder. And, but anyway, and I and I quoted referring to if you've broken one, you're guilty of them all, as in law is one unit. If you're only one thing of 
say 10 if you're dealing with a deck log, then that one thing is part of that whole law and you, you're a lawbreaker. You've only got to sin one sin to be guilty before God. So that's what it says here too. I don't know if you noticed that. He says, Cursed is everyone that does not continue in all things of the law. All. All of them. And all of them all the time. So if you're guilty of one thing one time, you're done. And we're guilty before we even know that we're going to try to start, right? Verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God, it's clear because the just shall live by faith, not the law. The just shall not live by the law, right? That's what that means. The just shall live by faith. The law is not of faith. Is that a stretch? It's not a stretch. It's what it says. Here we go. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us. He bought us out from the curse of the law. Christ did this. And how did he do it? Being made a curse for us. Substitution in our place. Right? For or because it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. In other words, people that are guilty are punished for crimes. They're crucified on a tree. Christ became guilty by <coughs> taking on the curse of our guilt, of our sin of our transgressions, of our iniquity. So Christ had to be sin. He had to be charged of the sin of the elect, imputed to his account, and he owned it in an effectual way. And he suffered, that's kind of the evidence of he owning it, he suffered as a result in it. The father saw it. Father is the imputer. The father imputed it to him. It was really transferred in real life. And as a result, the father poured out his wrath on Christ. This had to be done in order to get rid of it. So that Christ could redeem or make payment and there had to be satisfaction taking place first before the payment was in full. He had to make payment in reference to the penalty and the guilt of sin. So that was a real easy explanation and not much detail, but I want to bring us back to our topic. Does God have the power to do that? Does he have the authority? Does he have the right? And can he get it done? So that's the that's that's one of the questions. Remember that I think the first message we asked uh, a simple question. You ought to be asking people you deal with that you witness to. How can a guilty sinner be justified or declared righteous in the sight of a holy God? That there has to be some change take place because God will not justify the guilty. 
and he won't condemn the righteous. He won't do it. So uh, something has to be done. An activity has to be done first by God so that he can justify us. If he if God cannot justify the guilty, he has to make us not guilty in order to justify us. I mean, that's really, really simple. And I guess really the crux of it is we deal with uh, how he takes away that guilt, how he makes us not guilty. And that's what we're talking about. The person and work of Christ takes care of this so that we may be declared righteous. We mentioned more importantly, a more important question. How can God himself do this and be just? God is said to be, he says about himself, that I'm a just God and a savior. We don't understand how important this question is. It's very, very important. How can God be just and justify the ungodly? This is more important than even us being just because it's God word first. Again, we gotta, we got to deal with God in truth, how he is, before we can be beneficial of what he accomplished. He has to be right according to his holy character in declaring the elect perfectly righteous. So how can he do this in power and authority and do it in a legitimate, real way and not a pretend, fake, make-believe way? We kind of gave that little kind of goofy scenario like God didn't say in the covenant or somehow communicate to Christ. <coughs> the hours come and all right, we talked about this in the covenant. Remember, we're going to go through here. And we're going to we we're so supernatural that we can fake everybody out. And we're just kind of kind of like go through the motions and nothing's really going to happen. I can act like I transfer sin to you and you're going to suffer. And we can play this off where nobody will know. It's it's not make believe. It's not fake. It really happened. The, the one who is the God-man, the eternal son of God, he suffered and he died for real. And us who are in Adam, we see the effects of, of the imputation, the condemnation, and then the nature that flows from that, the sin. And we live with it still, the sin nature. And this is what legally Christ took care of in this issue of justification. So it's not make-believe. It's not pretend. It's not paced on. Now, because God says something is, then it must not be a lie. Right? I'm talking about this thing's not fake. That's what I'm getting at. Not here. Not in this area. Not in really in any area, but, you know, this is a magnification of his glory here. His redemptive character is the most clearest picture of the way of seeing who he is. So this is an important issue here, and we have to be certain what God says, since faith is believing what God says is true. That's what faith is, just believing believe in God when, he's, when he speaks. All right, let's, uh, let's finish up in Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah chapter 53 and start in verse 6. 
run out of time pretty quick here. 51 minutes. Isaiah 53, 6. And we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity, that's, that's our lawlessness, our transgressions, the iniquity of us all. And this is referring to the elect. And it's going it's to prove, uh, prove that out here in a couple of verses. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. It's because he volunteered for this. He, he knew he came to die. He was brought like a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison, from judgment, who had declared his generation. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. It means he died. That's what that means, simply. Why was he cut off out of the land of the living? For or because the transgression of my people he was stricken. He's talking about the elect. Shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. And here's here it is in action. Verse 9. And he put his grave with the wicked and with the rich one in his death. He had a borrowed tomb. He didn't even have a house. I think he's going to have his own tomb. Um, didn't have a place to lay his head. Although he had done no violence, he who knew no sin was made sin, right? Nor there was any deceit in his mouth. He was perfect. He was sinless. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Some versions, uh, more modern versions say crush. It pleased Jehovah or the Lord to bruise Christ. To grieve him, that he should put forth his soul as a guilt offering for sin. So the father in the covenant, of course, agreed to do this. The sin was put on Christ by imputation. Christ took it on and he was guilty. He owned it as if it was his. It was his at that point. Because he was one with us. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ, right? God's people were in union with Christ. So Christ took on their sin. And he was a, a sin offering for his people through that means of taking on sin that way. And here comes the Father in being involved, hands on in punishing Christ for that sin that Christ willingly took on. And the Father was able to exercise his wrath like never before and like he never will again, ever. Satisfaction. It pleased him to perform this and to accomplish this and to show this both that he can do it and remain just, and he can do it 
in love for his people so that we may be just after the fact, after Christ takes care of our sin. There's pleasure in it, in accomplishing it. It goes on, uh, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It sounds like success to me. He shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul, more success, and shall be fully satisfied by his knowledge. Well, he's all knowing, right? Shall my righteous servant, speaking of Christ, justify many, for he shall bear, the word means carry, their iniquities. He carried him away. He bore him in his body, carried him in his body until justice was satisfied against them, fulfilling the requirements of the strict law of God, of God's holy law. Therefore, because of that, I will divide to him with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he's poured out his soul unto death. He died. He actually died. He had to. He said it's finished, and he died. The wages of sin is death. He earned the wages of sin because that sin was transferred to his account. He owned it. He bore it away. And to get rid of it, he had to die to do it. So he died. He said, it's finished. And he was counted among the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many, speaking of his people, and he made intercession for those same people, for the transgressors. Now, I've run completely out of time. I want to say one more thing, get this in, because I alluded to a fourth imputation that comes maybe closer to what some of these people are saying about imputing something that's already there. In Romans 6, it talks about how salvation, I'm not going to read any of it. We've read it before. Maybe spend some more time on this later. Maybe write an article about it or something. It talks about how salvation took place, how that we were crucified with him when he was Killed, we were killed, and we were raised with him. And it says how, you know, what it resulted in, you know, our justification and so on. And then it says, all right, I think it's verse 11 of Romans 6. It says, okay, now that you've heard this, now you reckon it to be so. You impute it in your mind to be so by faith that this is for you, that this is in your place for you. Christ is your representative. Righteousness is already imputed to us. Now, when we turn around and agree with that, we reckon it to be so in our minds that it is so. That's the only sense that I can see where we reckon something to be so that's already been imputed by the Father. Does that make sense? And that's us doing it by the power of God through faith. When we talk about imputation, it has to do with the three imputations. This is an, an effectual thing that doesn't change, doesn't waver, and it's done. God has done it. It can't be stopped. It doesn't change. Our faith wavers. There are some days where we might not reckon that to be so. We might, we might go by our feelings, say, I don't feel saved. Well, that form of us reckoning or not reckoning, sometimes it's not very effectual if we are looking inside right and maybe we lack assurance by 
doing that goofy wrong thing of looking inside instead of looking into Christ. Just want to throw that last thing in there of us reckoning us to be in this state is us agreeing with something that's already been done. And that's what we ought to be doing. All right. I had a bunch more notes left, but I'm not going to part on this. So we'll pick, pick something else up next week.